Hello, and yes, you're inside the Euros again. Today, we look at the group of death games with favourites France dropping points and Germany romping to victory against Portugal. We'll also talk Spain's win over Poland and, regrettably, England versus Scotland too. We'll also look over the whole second round of the group. Uh, we'll also look over the whole second round of fixtures and talk about how things stand ahead of the final games. I'm Rick Sharma, and I'm David Gibbs, and we're happy to welcome back AFP's Kieran Canning. Hi, Kieran. Good evening, gentlemen. We're also going to hear from Joe Castanelli in Munich and Richard Martin in Seville. We'll start with Kieran and, and the Scotland game. It was only fair to get Kieran back on so he can gloat after Scotland earned a point at Wembley in a nil-nil draw. But it was a terrible game, wasn't it? Well, well first of all, I have to say, I can't believe we've won the Euros. <laughs> I mean, is, the, is the tournament even going on anymore? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking that actually watching it, that I was so tense during the game. But I thought, if you're not English or Scottish, I mean, I can imagine the rest of Europe just like watching this going, this is awful. This is, you know, this is uh, how they... They still quite often, I know from living in Spain, you know, they still quite often talk about British football as if you know it's four four two and sling it up to the big man, even though that's uh, something of of days long gone by. Um, but yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a great game. I think Scotland did everything you could ask of them in terms of um, the, yes, there was the the fight and the passion and the determination and all those things. But actually, I thought they they played really well. They played the better football for large parts of it um, I know we'll come on to I'm sure talk about Billy Gilmore given that Rick has been championing him um, and he and Cal McGregor neither of whom started the, the first game made such a difference in midfield because they're they're pretty much you know Scotland's two best technically gifted midfielders and it allowed them to keep possession and, and not not allow it to get into a game of attack versus defence um, but as much as I would like to make the story about Scotland I think the bigger story is probably England because I mean, if Scotland get through, then it'll be great. It'll be historic for Scotland, but we're not expecting Scotland to go far in the tournament. Whereas this raised some real serious question marks over England's um, potential or possibilities of going deep in the tournament, I think. So, I don't think you're wrong, but to, to play devil's advocate on that, is there not a case that these kind of games actually aren't the kind of games that matter really for England's prospective long-term in the tournament? Because... You know, when they get to perhaps the quarterfinals or even you know perhaps the semi-finals, they'll be up against a team where, if anything, they're going to be the Scotland and the other team's going to be the England. If they play France, for example. I would, yeah, I would, I can see where you're coming from in that, but I think that there's just so many question marks over the personnel. So, for example, um, you know, does Harry Kane continue to play? So, if see, I'm pretty sure he'll start against the Czech Republic. But see, he has another game against the Czech Republic, um, like he's had in the first two games. Then you know there's real question mark there. I feel like England still have no idea of what their best team is. They have all these really good attacking players, but I think I mean I brought this up in the, the previous show. I'm sure that because of their preparation, the the two friendlies that they played. If you looked at other countries, even countries like Germany, for example, that had um, four key players in the Champions League final, their final friendly it was only against Latvia, but they played like the proper team of what you expect them to line up with in the tournament. And yes, there was difficulties with so many English players in the in the European finals, but Southgate took the, the option in the second friendly not to play any of them, basically play a scratch team. And they're still just looking for these combinations. You don't know, you know, if it should be Kane, Rashford, Sterling, as it has been through most of the qualifications, should Sancho or Grealish or Foden come in there, a mix and match. They, they haven't settled on any system. And then 
I th- the bit that I would agree with you on that idea of when they play a better team, it'll, it'll suit them better. I think, for example, last night playing both Phillips and Rice was really unnecessary. But if you play a France or a Germany or a Portugal or a Belgium or whatever, then you know that might be important. Um, but there's also things like, you know, is Henderson going to come back in at some point? Is Maguire going to come back in at some point? Who are the starting fullbacks? No one has any, no, no one has any idea who's the first choice left back or right back. I think there's so many questions that it's not just a, a change of game plan. It's a whole team structure issue for England going forward. One thing that's certain about England, and I say this without being someone who wants to see him start the what start games, at least until this point, is that they got a lot better when Jack Grealish came on. He was fouled, I think, four times more than anyone else in the match. And I don't know. Is it time to start Super Jack? Possibly. I mean, the one that uh, I can agree with that I find incredible that he hasn't played any minutes at all is Sancho. Uh, and I, I think there is a, an element of um, because Sancho doesn't play in England, you know, he is one of the, the best young attacking players in the world. It's a reason that even in a COVID market, Man United are planning on spending nearly £100 million on him. Yeah, he hasn't gone the field at all in the um, in the first two games, and Grealish certainly made I say made an impact, but it, even just the the stat you're bringing up there was fouls, and it, it means there's a there's a good side and a bad side to that. Yes, obviously you can win fouls in dangerous situations. You can you know, and set pieces can be very important. Um, but also I felt with with Grealish last night, there's quite a few times where the Scotland players thought just foul him before he gets up to speed. So. It wasn't, you know, there was quite often he was getting fouled in his own half and things, um, so it wasn't actually a, a major danger. Um, but it comes back to that earlier point I, ma- I was making that they do- still don't know what's the best combination. Um, and uh, and you made the point right earlier in the tournament when people were talking about um, whether Sterling should start or not. That if, particularly with Kane not playing that well, you need goal scorers in the team as well. So I can't see a situation where, despite the, the clamour for it, you're going to get um, both. Grealish and Foden starting. I think you need one of Sterling, um, Sancho or Rashford and then maybe one of Grealish and Foden. So you've got the, the sort of creative option and the pacey goal-scoring option. Um, but certainly one of the biggest problem I think for England going forward at the moment is Kane because he just looks Why, so far though? off it. Why does he's Kane the look one, bad? He's... It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, he had a great season but possibly... Um, he had one very minor uh, injury for a couple of weeks. But if you think of, of Kane over the last number of years, sometimes it, by the time the tournaments come around, around he's um, he's benefited from the fact that he's been out injured for a couple of months at some point in the season. Whereas this time he's pre- played pretty much every game for Tottenham. And it could just be that the season's caught up with him. He's never he's never normally the, the most athletic as it is, but he just looks so sluggish. Um, and and it and that issue that uh, I keep repeating, you know, he doesn't seem to have he doesn't have a son in the team where he has that like really good understanding that he drops in and son goes and he can pick him out. He doesn't seem to like have that so far in this tournament. And I think people are also wise to it as well. They know that they know that Kane isn't going to beat them for pace and behind. So you saw last night in particular, someone like Grant Hanley, who's hardly you know Fabio Cannavaro, two thousand and six. Um, but he just followed Kane in and like got tight to him as soon as he dropped deep. So there wasn't that option for Kane to, to drop deep, turn and play the ball in behind. Um, so I think people are certainly sort of wising up to that move of, of Kane coming in and players going in, in behind him. 
I mean, it could turn around. You could play against the Czech Republic, score two goals, and get his confidence back. But it's just this thing of of tournament football. It's such a compressed. I mean, even in a elongated format with twenty four teams in the last sixteen, you know, the games come thick and fast, and it's really hard to to you know start off in poor form and suddenly recover it mid tournament. I think you make a good point on that, Kieran. Also, the two players that we've been talking about, Harry Kane, Jaden Sancho, they've got big transfers over their heads at the moment. Do you think they might be distracted by this with Sancho possibly going to Manchester United, Harry Kane maybe going to City? Their mind is elsewhere. I, mean, I think if, if Kane was looking to move this summer, then bizarrely he might be playing himself into a move because if he'd played well, there'd have be been no chance of anyone uh, meeting his asking price. And I still think that's going to be the problem for, for Kane to move uh, this summer is that I, I just don't see anyone paying what Tottenham in particular Daniel Levy's going to want. Sancho um, could be different. Sancho, the move to Manchester United does seem to be closer than, than any move uh, for Kane. And maybe that explains a bit of the behind the scenes. You know, if he has been distracted by that in training or Southgate's got the impression that, you know, agents and stuff are in his head, rather than concentrating on the tournament, that could possibly explain why he wasn't even in the squad for the first game and then got on last night. I mean, purely from a Scotland's fan, Scotland fan's point of view, uh, I was delighted with the way that Southgate handled the game last night because we've talked so much about this tournament about the fatigue and the season and having five substitutes, and particularly for the bigger nations, you know, the, the teams like England who have a really deep bench, that should be a massive advantage. And Southgate only made two subs last night. You know, Sterling stayed on for the full 90. Um, he kept Rice and Phillips on. And it, Southgate's words afterwards, when he was interviewed, pretty much was kind of summing up that he didn't want to take a risk because if he took a risk and then they lost the game, um, there'd be even greater pressure. I mean, th- there is a, a more positive spin to put on this for England in that they've had a really bad performance but they've still come away with a draw and they're pretty much through in terms of, you think, four points are enough to get you through. The whole permutations thing of, you know, do you want to finish top of the group, second of the group, third in the group even in that group um, doesn't really matter. And I think matters even less after today because you, you're going to have no idea how Group F is going to turn out. So um, even if, if England do finish top of the group, they might get... Portugal, for example, which you know doesn't look so bad after today. So, um, if they finish second in the group, yes, they might get an easier last sixteen, but then they would run into a harder quarterfinal type thing. So, um, I think they just have to to try and get back to winning ways against the Czech Republic and and get some momentum. But I think it's 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 a really big game for them now because even though they won't go out of the tournament if they lose, um, they're just going to be such a a down. Uh, a down feeling in, in the nation and Everton's going to turn against Southgate if they don't bounce back in that game Don't forget England always have a sort of a group stage wobble there's always one game which England sort of don't do very well at and, and there's a problem I mean, I'll throw out an interesting stat let's call it a stat I saw it on Twitter ITV once again need to be blamed for last night's draw by way of an update since France 98 England's record at the tournament now stands as on ITV, played 24, won 4, drawn 12, lost 8. On the BBC, played 22, won 15, drawn 3, lost 4. The last time England won 90 minutes on ITV 
Jude Bellingham was eight years old. <laughs> Anti-capitalist England takes stance against advertising. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it very much doesn't because uh, uh, Southgate and Kane were asked in the pre-match press conference about Coca-Cola Gate and gave the, <laughs> the most fervent backing of the sponsors I think I've ever heard. Coca-Cola so, uh, is delicious. <laughs> anything but anti-capitalist. Yeah. I mean, despite the fact that some people would have you believe they're all <laughs> Marxists, I, I actually think that, yeah, the England yeah, team they, do they, love they a sponsor. And I, w- I was absolutely hammered for this in the pub when we were watching the game. Absolutely hammered for this and absolutely <laughs> hammered as well, separate issue. But I said, despite the fact that obviously it's a bad result, you know, drawing against Scotland, a team you should, England should be beating. I said it's actually, it's a good result for England because in terms of desire... They're not going to play any team that wants to beat them more at this tournament. That is the hardest game they're going to face in terms of the opposition going 100% and, and giving everything they've got. All the fans travelling down from Scotland to London and a point which which basically qualifies them for the next round. And again, we'll see how it pans out with the groups, but maybe puts them in a position where they end up with an easier opponent. Is this when we play uh, Scotland again in the final then? <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think they'll quite match the uh, the levels of Scotland, but you know, there is now the possibility with Wales doing well that you know there could be a an England Wales later in the tournament as well. Yeah, well, England Wales doesn't have the same history as England Scotland, though. No, no, it doesn't. No, but they they do have uh, sort of two more match winners than than uh, than Scotland. Because I think if you compare, for example, Scotland and Wales, or or Scotland and a few teams like they do have quite a few good players, like we talked about. Gilmore and Tierney coming back in made a massive difference, Robertson. But again, you kind of saw that all of Scotland's good players are in defence or in midfield. There's, there's not like a... We don't have a Lewandowski or Ibrahimovic or Isak like Sweden have had type thing. Um, and that's why after two games, played quite well in both games, had chances in both games, not scored any goals. So looking ahead to the Croatia game, hopes are now raised and everything. It's a very Scottish thing, you know, to, to raise the hopes and then be dashed at the last. So... Uh, I think there's still question marks there for Scotland as well in terms of having the quality in the, the final third to actually do any damage. Do you expect he'll just pick the same team, Steve Clark, as he did against England because they did so well? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I, I did wonder about that because I, th- I wonder with with what you were just saying there that it was such a big game for Scotland. It was a much bigger game for Scotland than it was for England. Physically, uh, how will they react to it? Um, but the only real changes I could see him making now would be maybe be up front, um, bringing in someone like a, a Ryan Fraser um, to sort of add a bit more pace and and behind, um, because particularly Dykes he put in a, a huge shift, but you can see he was really flagging towards the the end of the game. So, um, that's the only change I, I think you can you can make the the back three was much much better on the on Friday night with with Tierney and McTominay back in there. He can't drop. Um, Gilmore and McGregor after the, the way they played um, and you know, McGinn's pretty much undroppable so at least the fact that they made four or five changes for Friday night means that there's not a huge number of players that would have played all three games and therefore they should have a little bit more in the tank and I was actually at the um, the Czech Republic Croatia game on, on Friday and there's certainly nothing to fear from what Croatia have shown so far in the tournament I thought they were they were really poor Really poor against England too, to be fair. Um, but you could maybe excuse them, and that it was the first game, and you know, we had higher hopes for England at that stage. Um, but yeah, the Czech Republic, um, 
it's a draw was a fair result. I was about to say the Czech Republic probably deserved to win, but the Czech Republic's goal was such a ludicrous penalty, and um, whereas whereas Croatia's goal was like one genuine moment of quality from from Perisic, but they're just so dependent on on Perisic and Modric, and they're thirty two and thirty five. So um, even if Croatia do sneak through by by beating Scotland, I certainly don't envisage a situation where they're going to recreate Russia twenty eighteen and and roll into the latter stages. Moving on to Saturday's action. France dropped points against Hungary in a one-all draw. It was a similar kind of performance to how Hungary played against Portugal, but this time they managed to hold on and, and, and get that point. Amazing, full stadium. Obviously had a massive impact, didn't it? Having 60,000 people in there. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I think you've seen it in the, the two games um, that they've had, but particularly going in front, and the crowd going, it just gives them that energy to to keep going. They had something to hold on to, uh, and even the celebrations at the end, um, they were like really wildly. So I mean, and it two ways to read that. It's just one, you know, they've held the world champions. They've made and what's a really really tough group for them. They've um, quite literally made their point by by getting a point, uh, but also keeps their their chances alive going into the last game. Now they're not going to have that crowd with them. For the uh, the final game because it's in in Munich, and particularly after what we saw from Germany later in the day, you would expect Germany to to see them off. Um, but I did wonder when you saw those celebrations, you know, were were they thinking, you know, this isn't the same Germany as years gone past? We've got a chance going to to Munich because if they won that game, they would get through, um, which is going to be a, a huge ask for them. But yeah, fair play to them, they they dug in well. But I, th- I think it has to be said again about France. It's like for a team with so many great attacking players. They just always try to do enough and no more. There's never a sort of a, there's never a French flair about them. That's what I'm saying. France lack a French flair, and uh, yeah, I felt like that in the game against Germany that they got ahead and then just sat on the lead. There were so many games like that in the World Cup in 2018 against likes of Peru and Australia and Denmark, where you know they did enough to get through the group without ever really extending themselves, um, and you just feel there's so much more to come from them. But I'm not sure we're gonna. Even if they do end up going on to win the tournament, I'm not gonna. I'm not sure we're gonna see what we want from them because you see Benzema and and Mbappe and Griezmann and Pogba. Um, but if they do go on to win the tournament, yeah, I, I think it'll ask be about that, whether they should play results. more attacking, especially in games where they're expected to win like this. It didn't make sense to me to have those, you know, Kante, Pogba, and Rabiot. I might have dropped Rabiot, brought in another forward to, to add to the mix. But the forwards, they haven't been firing beyond Mbappe, who, who I think was very good today. The other forwards, Griezmann had a, he scored the equaliser, but he missed a massive chance before that. Benzema missed a massive chance from an amazing assist by Mbappe. It was a really nice piece of control and a back heel to, an aerial back heel to Benzema, but, but he missed. And he looks like he's feeling the pressure a little bit, King Kareem. Yeah, get get Oli Giroud back in, I see. Stick it up to the big man. Um yeah, and there's, I mean, you what you do wonder if if things don't. I mean, again, they're another team that, after a disappointing performance, still have four points and still, therefore, should be pretty much safe of, of going through. But again, with their final game being against a Portugal team that probably now you need to get something to go through. Um, say France don't win that match. There was already some rumblings of people not being very happy with, for example, what um, something Giroud said. In a post-match uh, interview after the one of the warm-up friendlies, that suggested that Mbappe wasn't passing him the ball, 
Mbappe apparently wanted to call a press conference to sort of react to that straight away. Deschamps talked him out of that. Um, but yeah, if, if they don't play well against Portugal and don't win, and again, Benzema and, uh, and Griezmann don't fire, you know, will there be a bit more of a call for, for Giroud to, to come back in? Because Griezmann certainly benefits. One of, one of the major reasons why Griezmann's form for France generally has been so much better than his time at Barcelona, for example, um, is that he he much prefers playing off another striker. That's why he did so well at Atletico as well, because Simeone tended to play with uh, a four four two, um, and he'd have another striker to to play off, which he doesn't really have now. You certainly get the impression watching them that there's a kind of special relationship between Mbappe and Benzema, and Griezmann's just kind of fitting in around that. Whereas when Giroud plays. Griezmann really benefits from Portugal playing off. were taken for a ride by Germany. 4-2 it finished. Dr. Manuel Fate told us not to write him off. Dave told us that too. Don't write off the Germans. And here we are. They, that was the best game of the tournament for me so far. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, I would say the best performance. Um, my only doubt about it being the best game was just that I was really disappointed by Portugal. Um, they were flattered so much to be losing 2-1 at half time because the first like 10-15 minutes they could have been two or three goals down and suddenly were 1-0 up um but yeah Germany like it was really interesting because Yogi Love has been really fiercely criticized for changing to the system and going with the, the the wing backs and moving Kimmich out of midfield where he's been exceptional for for Bayern back into sort of right wing back role but today it was just like all about the wing backs. Like Gussens was incredible all, all day. He was like involved in three of the goals, possibly even four. Um, obviously scored in the fourth one himself. Kimmich was great from bombing down the right hand side as well. The, the sort of forward players where it didn't really work against France with both Muller and um, and Havertz in the team. You know everything came off them today. Uh, Gundogan and Kroos were really good in, in midfield so um, I still have my doubts about Germany even the way the, the game sort of flipped a bit when Portugal got back to 4-2 and there was like a t- 10 minute spell where they were really um, rocking for a little bit and Renato Sanchez smashed one off the post if that had gone 4-3 then you never know what might happen and I feel with Germany yeah, there's still, still issues there that probably stop them from winning the whole thing um, but certainly now they look they look well placed to get through to the the last sixteen, um, and yeah, they'll give they'll give anyone a, a game on their day. As it showed today, I mean, one of the favourites for the tournament. It's a very good point Portugal. about Gussens you made, um, and they absolutely, just took absolutely fantastic apart. today. And I, I tweeted something earlier about that. I was just like, "What well, this is the, the the tournament of attacking rampaging wing backs?" Because we've seen Dumfries for the Netherlands, we've seen Spinazzola with Italy, obviously Gussens today, and 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 Kimmich to some extent. It's it's almost like the position that in the past people would always always joke, you know, that's the worst position. If you're if you're bad at football, you end up playing left back or right back. These days, that's like one of the most important positions on the pitch now. Yeah, I think that's been the case for a long time now. Like going I think the sort of Danny Alves generation was what really changed that. But I did laugh like when you see see, for example, like Trent Alexander Arnold talking about how he wants to like re- recreate the the position of right back and, and what it means and it's like well you're like 10 15 years too late for that because uh, it's all about the uh, 
the, the flying fullbacks when you look at the the Barca Madrid teams that have kind of dominated the Champions League over the past number of years with the likes of Marcelo, uh, Dani Alves. Even if you look at Bayern last year with Alfonso Davis, um, yeah, that's such an important position. It's all to do with how the game has changed and that you used to have your wingers that would stay high and wide um, sort of on their natural side, so like a left footer on the left side and a right footer on the right side, whereas now for the past 20-odd years, you have your inverted forwards, which then create the space for those fullbacks to go on. Um, one of the things that has been interesting in this tournament has been more sort of fullbacks doing well on the opposite, right their opposite yeah. foot, if that makes sense. So like Spinazzola being a, a very right-footed left-back. So um, yeah, something to watch out for. And now we can also welcome Joe Casanelli to the podcast. He was at the game in Munich today. What a game it was. You enjoy it, Joe? No, it was rubbish. No, game <laughs> of the tournament so far, I would say. You know, between that and the Netherlands, Ukraine, I think, for the most sort of neutral entertainment. And it was really good in the, the way that there were so many narratives surrounding the game. There was Germany needing to bounce back from a really disappointing defeat against France. There was Portugal, the defending champion, seemingly on the march, having smashed Hungary in the first game, although that result did flatter to deceive them a bit, given uh, given the circumstances around it. So, yeah, it was a, it was a really high-quality game, and with so many twists and turns, it, you know, you couldn't have foreseen Portugal taking the lead at the moment they did, because Germany was so on top. But on the flip side... Germany equalised probably when they were at their worst point in the first half. And then all of a sudden, Germany, they went 4-1 up, but the way they were, it could have been like 6 or 7 because they, they were just having an absolute field. Gosens was having a field day up against Semedo. He just, for, for whatever reason, I know that I think that, we'll get onto this, I'm sure, that he took Bernardo Silva off at half-time, Fernando Santos, to try and protect Nelson Semedo. But he put Renato Sanchez on, who just attacked. <laughs> and he only brought Rafa Silva on, who just attacked. He'd been better off bringing on Diogo Dalot or someone like that as a second right back because Gosens had an absolute field day causing mayhem. He scored a goal that was disallowed and like scored one, set up another couple of the goals, didn't he? He was just. Yeah, it's amazing. He was brilliant, Gosens. But I think the setup from Portugal probably. Probably helped them. But then again, you know, they were 4 1 up Germany. As I said, it could have been 6 or 7. 4 2. And then at 4 2, Renato Sanchez with that absolute banana blast from nowhere. If that goes in, I think that Portugal might have even equalised because Germany were rattled at that point. So, so yeah, it was, you know, such a great game with so many twists and turns and so many moments of individual and team quality as well. It's quite, I think it's quite interesting the Kai Havertz and Thomas Muller partnership in attack. They're both players that love to move a lot. You know, they're very fluid, and it's often you don't get to appreciate it on television as much because you can't. You, you know, the camera's not following where they're moving. The camera's following the ball, and they're making runs and moving around. I don't know what you think of, of those two up front for Germany. Yeah, I actually, I was actually quite impressed with Havertz. It certainly is off the ball work against France when I was at that game. And it's one of those if you can't really tell it from television. But when he was replaced against France, I was actually really surprised as well because for the front three of Nabri, Muller and Havertz, I thought he was the best one of the three. And Muller was the guy who stayed on and maybe that's, you know, love kind of having to cede to Muller given that he'd been in the wilderness and convinced him to come back into the team and Havertz <laughs> being the younger players maybe easier to 
to you know to 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 pull out of the out of the out of the team. But I like the idea of Muller being he, in the wilderness, just like just lost somewhere <laughs> and low fat found him and brought him back in, gave him a hot cup of cocoa well, and then got a kit on him. Well, I mean, Low, who originally put him in the wilderness, then <laughs> returned for him the years later as well. I said, come on, Thomas, I'll have you back now. But yeah, I mean, Havertz especially, I think he's really, really good player, really intelligent, runs off the ball. Although I think he's, you know, he did get a goal today, but I do think his his finishing needs a bit of work in that the first goal that everyone thought he'd scored was an own goal by Ruben Diaz and he completely misses the ball. He's in front of an open goal and completely misses the ball. And for the Germany are quite lucky to get that second goal because it's a ball clipped in that Havertz just completely misses. And Kimmich is the one who latches onto it to then square. So I think he maybe needs to do a bit of work in front of goal. Um, and I've, but I have been quite impressed with his sort of off the ball in general all round play. You know, Thomas Muller is one of those players who just uses quality and class and. It's weird that he's very, like, you don't know what he's good at, but he just appears to be, like, seven out of ten at pretty much every... You wouldn't say Thomas Muller has this one quality that you can... that's a standout, you know, there's players who've got great pace, great finishing. Muller's, like, a sort of seven out of ten at everything, but not a ten out of ten at anything. He's one of those really strange players, but he's a... You know, he's one of those players that I'm sure that most managers would love to have in their squad. Yeah, it's more intangible Muller's quality. It's like it's like an abstract quality rather than a, an obvious one like pace or strength or or whatever. Yeah, I completely agree. He's he's just you know you wouldn't survive at Bayern Munich playing every week for Bayern Munich at the top level if you were, you know, if you're a bit of a you know just a sap essentially. If you were, you know. <laughs> He's he's maybe what Luis Enrique thinks that Morata is for Spain. In that he's the guy who you know he can score the goals, he can link up play, he can do pretty much anything he wants to without having that one discernible quality. And he's he's just back in the team, Germany look a much better side with him. The one thing that does surprise me with Germany is that say like Leroy Sane doesn't really get a look in. And then I thought that a couple of the substitutions that Yogi Love made at 4-1 were a bit debatable as well. Well, yeah, as as Dr. Fate told us, he makes a lot of, of dubious decisions and he doesn't have Hansi Flick as his assistant anymore bit helping out and, and, and guiding him and stopping him from doing the stupid stuff. So it could end up being quite interesting at, at later date in the tournament up against more big teams, see, see what, how they do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Germany, from what I've seen of them, I don't think that they could they could win the tournament. I think they've got enough about them for maybe a semi-final berth. I mean, if you'd have asked me this question before the game today, I'd have said, no way, Germany are out, even in the group stage, because they were so you know toothless against France. But the reaction that they had today, helped by some you know really sort of lackadaisical Portuguese defending... The reaction they had today was was brilliant, and I think that they'll be able to. They will be able to steamroll a lot of sides playing the way they did today, and I think that Hungary are going to get you know battered by them because Hungary, without that hundred percent you know full capacity crowd in Budapest, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to live with the Germans. 
So I think that Germany are a side who will probably get to the quarters or semis, but I think that it's you know ultimately that their lack their lack of like a proper out and out striker might cost them. And then as well, Portugal in this game it was a really good game. Portugal it wasn't if Portugal had a lot of chances, and yet they still scored twice. And probably could have had another one or two goals had you know the the bounce of the ball gone their way. So, and one of the big things as well was that one of the things that Germany need to sort out, especially if they come up against you know a side such as Belgium or France again in the knockout stages, is what are they doing from attacking corners, leaving Kai Havertz back as basically the only defender? I couldn't believe it when when Bernardo Silva's ring down the ball with the right hand side. Diego Jota is like trying to time his run, and the guy who's playing him on time is Kai Havertz. When they've and the, and the thing is, they've got a couple of short lads in the team, and normally the short lads get held back for corners to defend. And Havertz is actually really tall. Having seen him in in up close and personal, he's over six foot tall. Whereas the likes of Kimmich and Nabry, I don't think are. So it's really interesting to see why Havertz is the guy held back, and then you know. A forward-thinking player, maybe holding a defensive line, isn't going to be able to, or putting in a tackle. Even is not maybe the best decision to have there. So I think there's maybe a couple of questionable decisions, much as the doc told us that might end up costing Germany when it comes to playing against, uh, you know, a, a big side, one of the favourites in a knockout round. Well, it is an odd decision to have Havertz there. We saw exactly how it works to your advantage to have a fast defensive player there today with Spain, with Jordi Alba. He was left, basically the only one left, and Lewandowski ran all the way down from, from Spain's attack. And it was on the break, and Alba came back and just cut Lewandowski off. And, you know, that, that solved that problem. Yeah, well, that's where maybe if Leroy Sané were in the side, then you kind of understand it. But Havertz, you know, He's a, he's a good player. We spoke about his movement and his positional sense, but he's not necessarily a quick player. I don't think you just. I don't think one of his traits would be to say he's got, you know, lightning pace. No, I'd say he's fast, really that, fast he's for not, his size, but not. But he's not like especially fast. Yeah, he's not especially fast, and he's not necessarily a, you know, a muscular, you know, a player who could maybe bully someone off the ball. He's very, very slight as well. So that's it. It was just seemed incredibly bizarre, and even more bizarre was essentially the fact he was almost just on his own. It wasn't as if it was him and another player back. It was literally Havertz on the halfway line. Bernardo Silva was running at him. Jota's running at him. Ronaldo's running at him from deep. I mean, he was in put in invidious position. You know, he, he did his best, but he, that's ultimately not his job. But decisions like that will, I think, as I say, end up costing. Costing Germany, or maybe, you know, I mean, I'm not a, a professional football analyst and I'm sure they've got very well-paid people to make these kind of decisions for them and there will be some sort of logic in the thinking and in training it will work. However, I think that that is maybe something they do need to take another look at. Spain drew again in another bad performance at La Cartuja in Seville. A one-all draw with Poland. Before we get into it, let's hear from Reuters journalist Richard Martin, who was at the game. I asked him what went wrong tonight. Well, after Spain passed Sweden to oblivion and they expected Poland to play with similar tactics, they actually found a team that was really aggressive, pressed them high, and they weren't able to play their usual passing game. 
and I think this was a much worse performance than against Sweden but they still created probably more chances today but still lacked that cutting edge cutting edge was a, a problem in both games but at least against Sweden they played nice football it's exciting partly because they were facing a team Spain were complaining about the fact that Sweden you know just uh, wanted to defend but that meant at least they could play their fluid game and just uh, it just meant that putting the chances away was difficult because they had a really crowded area but against Poland it was much harder for Spain to play their usual game and they actually had to resort to lots of long balls which is a dirty word in, in Spanish um, pelotasos and there was a lot of pelotasos and um, they just couldn't know to, they couldn't finish off the chances one of the problems was that Morata obviously there's been so much focus on Morata this week Morata is not really a striker that you want to get on the end of long balls because his, his main strength seems to be kind of knocking the ball down kind of uh, you know winning aerial battles and knocking the ball down so there were lots of knockdowns from Morata today and he actually didn't have in the second half certainly he didn't have much support and um, in the first half he was Moreno was, was brilliant and uh, he had really good link-up play with Marcus Llorente and Spain were, were unpredictable because they could attack down either wing and against Sweden they only really attacked down the left wing but in the second half it was just they once they got into the area they wanted to just try and pass the ball into the into the net it's a real shame the last chance when Sarabia I think Sarabia should just go for that but he tries to cushion it into the path of Morata and Chesney makes a great save but I think that it would have been nice if Sarabia had had gone for himself so Spain just in both games just could not finish their chances and of course I mean you get a penalty no, I didn't. No one quite knew what was going on, but then when you see the replay, it's, it's a clear penalty, and they are struggling. Here's the way you would say they could be missing um, Sergio Ramos. This is the one moment when they could really have done with their captain. He's uh, so assured from the penalty spot, and Moreno um, just uh, hit the post, and then Morata, after we thought that he'd, um, you know, fixed his pro- confidence problems with the goal, he then scuffed chance scuffed the ball well wide I mean can we blame Morata for that one it's a difficult one but still if a striker is about reacting to balls that you don't expect to get to you then you should be putting that away and it just really didn't strike the ball cleanly and had a couple more chances later on but so if we were saying that the problem in the first game was that Spain played really well but couldn't take their chances today they didn't play very well and they couldn't take their chances either so who knows what's going to happen against Slovakia, but this is Spain's worst start to a Euro since Euro 96, and they also drew their first, drew their first two games. But we would think that, you would imagine, well, before the tournament, you would say Spain Slovakia would probably be Spain's easiest game, but given what we've seen so far, there's no guarantee they'll beat them. So we could be looking at Spain's first exit from the Euro from the group stage since Euro 2004. So it's been a bit of a grim evening at La Cartuja. Spain were booed off the pitch. Most of the fans left in a half and the Polish fans stayed and were in a really good mood. But um, yeah, who knows what's going to happen in the next game. But did not, no one expected that they would only have two points from their first two games. See, I thought it was, an, I thought it was another, despite the goal, bad finishing for Morata again on a couple of occasions. The penalty for Moreno off the post and, and then he just, just hit it wide. I think he definitely got to score that. And, it, and they ended the game without any natural strikers on the pitch. And uh, not that Adama Traore is a natural striker, but I'm just wondering why bring 
someone like Adama Traore to the Euros if you're not going to play him in two games where you need a goal desperately? But I suppose the argument would be coming back a little bit to what you suggested about England earlier on, that Adama Traore is your type of player for when the game is open. So if you're playing a really strong opponent and it's sort of end-to-end or Spain are ahead in the game and the other team has to come at them and he's like the perfect counter-attacking player, he's not really the type of player for a game where the opposition are playing 10 men behind the ball and, and you have to, to break them down. That being said, I was quite surprised he was included... Anyway, just based off the season that he had at, at Wolves, it like, wasn't um, great at all. But yeah, it's, it's a huge problem for Spain because they don't score goals, but then you know, they're not going to score a huge amount of goals when they don't have strikers on, on the field. Um, the decision in particular to take off Gerard Moreno um, was met with kind of bafflement in the, uh, in the stadium. And he, I, mean, I think the reason, that, for example, he started alongside Barata tonight is he's another player that seems to definitely benefit from playing with a, a strike partner but then that means that Spain seem to be going between playing two strikers or no strikers at all um, and they just don't have the whereas the the 2000 we'll go way back again the 2008 2010 2012 teams then they would rarely thrash teams either but they just had that level of control that would wear teams out and eventually they'd have that sort of one moment or of, of magic from a, a Xavi or Iniesta or a Villa or whatever. And this, that's what that this team is lacking. And it's, I mean, it's got a lot of good young players that maybe will be better in two or four years with like Pedri and Ferran Torres. Um, but yeah, it's just not clicking for them at all. I, I didn't like the decision to take Moreno off because the team looked a lot better at the start of the game from against Sweden with Moreno. He was, he was playing a really important part in everything they did. He was the guy that... It was his cross shot that Morata turned in for the goal. And it looked like Morata was offside and it would have been the most classic thing ever because it was initially ruled out for offside for that to be the case. But then VAR showed that he wasn't. And there was a nice angle from above on the VAR camera for that. And I just wish they had that angle all the time because it made it so clear that, that, that he was onside, even though the, the images looked like he was he was off. And Moreno also was the guy that won the penalty. I know he missed it, but you know you don't get that unless, unless he does it. And, and he also played a really nice ball in behind from Morata who fired a long way off target. So Luis Enrique taking taking Moreno off was seemed to me to be purely stubbornness. If we took Morata off first, people would be like, "Ah, oh, he's he's taking Morata off. He's he's given up on him after all the defending of him he did in the week." Just on a different point, though, do you think Spain are getting enough from that sort of batch of attacking midfielders? You know, when you look at like Olmo and Ferran Torres and Pedri. Um, do they need them to contribute a bit more? Do they need maybe um, Luis Enrique to move on a bit from having like both Coque and Rodrigo kind of sitting in the midfield? It would have been better with just one, and then having like an extra forward because I know they're not they're not conceding a huge number of chances, and that's why you know they've only conceded one goal in two games. But it certainly seems to be scoring goals. Yeah, I, I said on one of the preview pods or one of the re- the pods after the Sweden game that they they probably should look at putting maybe Thiago or someone like that in as the holding midfielder against Poland because they're going to have the ball. We know they're going to have the ball, Spain. So you, you don't necessarily need to have Rodri in the team. And you're right about the wide forwards. Danny Olmo's been disappointing in both games. Ferran Torres missed the chance today and, and generally didn't, didn't add much when he came on. Keeping Gerard Moreno in the team is essential. And then you're just looking for one other player. to, uh, And it might be Marcos Llorente, you know, because he, for Atletico Madrid, he was absolutely fantastic 
in attacking positions this season, in attacking midfield, in the right-hand side of the attack. And so it makes a lot of sense to me to play, if you're going to keep Morata on the team, play Moreno and play Marcos Llorente and bring in Azpilicueta right back, just be, you know, not because Spain need to change Llorente at right back. He's been fine. You know, they kept a clean sheet and they did fine today, fine today. But he gives a lot in attack. He gets goals. He's got a lot of goals for Let's Go this season. So another round of fixtures is over. The best goal for me is probably still that Schick strike. But any standouts from this week? Kevin De Bruyne scored a great goal for Belgium. Locatelli's goal for Italy, second goal was really good. Miranchuk curled one into the top corner against Finland for Russia. And then Ronaldo burst down the pitch, ran 80 yards at the age of 36 or 306, whatever old he is now, and, 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 he, and he tapped it in from close range. But it was a, it was a nice move. Yeah, I would go with the the De Bruyne goal. I just thought it was like it was it was that perfect combination of a really good team move, but with an excellent finish at the end of it. Uh, but I'm definitely going for that one because I don't want to talk about Patrick Schick anymore. <laughs> I, I'm going for uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, I've I've been a Ronaldo fan club. You think well, look look at that corner. He clears the corner, and starts the move, and basically gets on his bike and is pegging it down 82 yards or whatever it is sprinting up and he times his one perfectly as well so Cristiano for me yeah I actually agree with Gibbo there the the Ronaldo goal was was something special and having been in the stadium to witness it as well you kind of you get the full appreciation for it you see that drive the the relentlessness I also think it's brilliant because Bernardo Silva holds onto the ball just for the right amount of time Jota, you can see Jota's trying to go and he wants to go, but he just holds his run. It's a perfectly timed run, it's a perfectly timed pass, and you've got to say he's really unselfish as well, considering he's one on one with the goalkeeper. So I mean, I think if he if he doesn't square it and doesn't score, he's in for an absolute earful. But I think that that's probably the goal. I was going to say you got enough of a, a a lashing from Ronaldo when the the other day he was he was never not going to pass it up. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe that's maybe maybe some. Some thinking, some school of thinking there, but yeah, it was a, a fantastic, fantastic goal, and to witness it in the stadium was was something special. And moving on to the most impressive players so far, I mentioned a lot earlier: Spinazzola, Dumfries, Alba, Gus. I didn't mention Alba. Jordi Alba was good today, and and Gussens. They're like they're all fullbacks. They're all really good. Any other players that's impressed you? I've really liked Alexander Isaac of Sweden. The only the only criticism I have of him is that he should have passed. Sweden to score a second goal, took a shot himself. It would have been a great goal, but but he missed. And then you know Slovakia could have equalised at the end and, and got a point, and it would have been terrible for Sweden. Yeah, but I think Isaac uh, is a great shot. To be honest, I think uh, Lukaku has been really good in both games. First game scoring, second game he played a massive part in in both goals for Belgium. Um, a couple of the Italians. As you say, uh, Locatelli uh, in particular. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anyone, anyone else. Yeah, Dumfries uh, uh, for the Netherlands has been really good. He's, Dumfries is probably the one that stands out in terms of you think he's going to get a move off this tournament because he's been talked about for a while, but he's still playing um, in the Netherlands. So, yeah, those would be the ones that, that stand out for me. Yeah, I agree with you. Billy Gilmore had a, had a good game. But, it, um, against England and you know he should definitely be starting the next game against the Czech, uh, uh, Can you use his full name Billy Billy Ballandor Gilmore? 
Definitely agree with Kieran there about Dumfries. I also think that Jorginho Wijnaldum has been very good for the Netherlands as well. Obviously, scored. Get a, the... get a room, Joe. I know because <laughs> you've got a room, but you know, Genie isn't there. Yeah, I wish it was the genie in my bottle here that I'm holding. But he's, uh, I just, th- I just think he's a wonderful player, and he's having a really good Euro and showing the, the player there is. I also think you've got to say Cristiano Ronaldo as well, because I did. I, look, I, I, someone actually said this about the last point when Gibe was praising Ronaldo. They were like, he's bought into this Ronaldo narrative. They said to me, and I said, oh, to some extent, I agree because against Hungary, Ronaldo, I think he had a bad game, and then. After after someone's already scored the first goal of the game, after Guerrero scored, then Ronaldo scores a penalty, and then when everyone's given up at that point, he goes and scores a nice goal. Second goal is nice, uh, and then today, today he had a good game. I can't deny that. Can't deny that. Uh, but but the goal was a tap in. I know the team the team element of it is important, and okay. run down the pitch. Okay, well, so I mean, I I get what you're saying, and like, well, first of all, penalties in this tournament are proving quite hard to score. So you've actually got to bang them in as well. And fair play to him, he does that. Scores twice in the opener. So he's got three goals in two games. And one of the things as well was that the second goal from Portugal today, if he doesn't have the sort of drive and determination to try and keep the ball in, because it'd be really easy for him to just let that ball bounce out because it goes just over Jota's head. And it looks for the world that's going out. And he's just there with sort of these like bionic stretch Armstrong legs that just managed to keep and hook the ball in and set up Jota, so while maybe I know you're not his biggest fan, Rick, I think that you've still got to give him kudos for his performances thus far, and there was a couple of touches as well, there was the... the Against really, Rudiger. Yeah, there was the one where it was like the, the sort of back flick, he chips it over him and then sort of um, a volleyed back heel pass, which is just, just, was just out of this world. And yeah, I mean, I'm as... I'm obviously not as loath to praise him as you might be. I'm not as down on him as uh, Rick appears to be. <laughs> to be fair, this, this criticism mainly comes from the first game when he got loads of praise he didn't deserve, in my opinion. All right, fair enough. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really catch the first game because I was working uh, a game that was happening immediately after that. So, but I think that you know, three goals in two games. What is he top scorer, joint top scorer of the tournament thus far? So you can't along with Paddy Schick. Exactly, you can't, you know, two goats just up there. <laughs> another another uh, honourable mention would be uh, Coca-Cola and Heineken's own Andrei Yarmolenko, who uh, scored a worldie in the first game and then was very good in the second. Yeah, Scored yeah, again. Statman Johnny knows his stuff. Got to get back on Statman Johnny, we're getting back on. Yeah, just talk about Yarmo, really. Yarmo fan club. And just, just last of all, we're just going to have a quick look through the groups. Group A, Italy, six points. Wales, four points. Switzerland, one point. Turkey, nil point. And those those games are on, on Sunday night, the last games. Italy, Wales and Switzerland, Turkey. What do we reckon? Italy through already, of course. Wales, more or less through. Switzerland, Turkey is kind of the big one because if, you know, if, if, if Turkey win, then both teams are probably out. Yeah, with my Scottish hat on, that's, uh, that's actually a massive game because um, if Switzerland win then there's a very good chance that a team with four points finishing third won't be enough. Uh, so, yeah, all the Scots will be, be rooting on for Turkey and uh, hopefully get rid of both of them. Then on Monday, we've got a lot of games. We've got four games, the most games on any day so far at the Euros, that'll be. 
because we've got both Group C games and Group B games. Even though that the first games, according to UEFA's bizarre schedule, are the Group C games, we're going to go in alphabetical order and talk about Group B. Belgium on six points qualified, Russia three points, Finland three points, Denmark nil point. And those games are Russia, Denmark, Finland, Belgium. You know what, Belgium, I'm going, I'm, I'm supporting Finland, so, yeah, <laughs> Belgium play a weak inside, finish, finish pick up, uh, pick up a point or three and, uh, and get through. I feel, I feel like this group, you've got, you've got to feel for Denmark in terms of, every, obviously, everything that happened with Ericsson and the emotion and everything on top of that, but then actually just how they've played as well, like, they've, they've deserved to get something, at least from both games and have lost both games. Um, but beating Russia might be enough to even get second place if Belgium beat Finland. Uh, so I'm back in ben Denmark to to do that, and uh, they're again they're at home in Copenhagen. So um, and I haven't been very impressed by Russia. So hopefully Denmark make it through. I thought Russia were a lot better in the second game than in the first game. In the first game they were taken apart by Belgium. Second game they actually looked like a football team again. And they scored that good goal through Moranchuk. But yeah, I mean, not a patch on the Russia that we saw at the, the World Cup in 2018. Group C then is Netherlands, six points qualified. Ukraine, three points, but looking pretty good. Austria, three points. And North Macedonia, nil point. And those games are North Macedonia, Netherlands, and Ukraine against Austria. One thing to watch out from this game, uh, well, the Ukraine-Austria game, is uh, Austria have previous for playing out a result that suits both teams um, against West Germany many years ago and uh, a draw would probably be good enough for uh, for both they and Ukraine to get to go through so I wouldn't be surprised if we see that yeah, I'd quite like to see Sam Marston sent that through and said should we just lump on a draw on that game I'd quite like to see Mad Marco Arnautovic just put a spanner in the works though I reckon that, is he back from his ban for this game he is yeah, yeah he's so back yeah one game if he's back from his ban he's the kind of guy who might might not listen to that kind of that kind of <laughs> instruction from his coach and is is even mad Marco mad enough to you know, upset Ukrainian uh, betting cartels though well yeah he's I think he, he likes to pick a fight um, with his with these Eastern European brethren so we'll see the, the, other, the only other thing about that is I think Ukraine are a good team and I think Austria are a bad team so it wouldn't surprise me if Ukraine just won that game because they easily can. I actually think Ukraine will just win. I just think they're a better team. So I, t- I told our friend not, not, to, not to lump on because, because of that possibility. Moving on to Group D, Czech Republic are leading the group on four points. England also have four in second place. Croatia third, one point. Scotland fourth, one point. And the games are on Tuesday. They are Czech Republic, England and Croatia, Scotland. Having lived through 33 years of being Scottish, I know the, what's coming here, which is the uh, the raised hope and expectation only to be dashed. Uh, the only doubt is whether it's a Morocco 1998 style 3-0 thrashing or you know, Scotland, Scotland winning 1-0 with uh, a minute to go and then Croatia strike back. Group E has Sweden top. On four points, Slovakia second on three, Spain third on two points, who would have thought that? And Poland fourth on one point. Everyone can still get through. And these this group and the next group are the two most interesting, I think, in, in terms of the, the final week. 
And the games are on Wednesday. Group E, that's Slovakia, Spain in Seville and Sweden against Poland and St. Petersburg. Well, the one question is, are Spain going to put away their chances? You, you expect they will, but maybe maybe we'd, maybe I'm just being too generous to, to Spain and, and actually they're just going to do what they've done and what they've shown they've done in the last two games. But I expect they'll win and then I expect that might be enough to take them, take them through. Top of the group depends because Poland will be going all out against Sweden because they desperately need a win and, and to hope to, to get through on four points. So we'll see how it ends up. I, I wouldn't surprise me if Spain did finish as group winners. I wonder if it's too late in the day for Spain to sign a forward from another country to be able to rescue this. <laughs> there was a good tweet about that. Yeah, some, someone was like, why did they sign Aymeric M- Laporte from France? They should have gone for Mbappe. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Laporte debate is obviously another, uh, another subject uh, completely, but they're just looking a bit toothless, aren't they? Which is really surprising. And I know that Moreno... Uh, helped them, he improved them a lot, but also he had the the ignominy of missing a penalty, didn't he? And you know, Manchester United fans will probably be cursing their luck of why couldn't he have done that in the Europa League final? And I don't know. Spain seems to be playing with a bit of fear. Uh, I think there's a there's a lot of negative press in Spain surrounding the national team as well, which obviously doesn't help. They're playing all them games at home, so it's that kind of. It's, they're one of the few examples in this tournament where home advantage really actually hasn't helped at all, I think, is how he describes Spain. You know, Denmark have obviously not been helped by it, but there are a lot of extenuating circumstances. But you look at, say, Hungary's performance against France today. You know, the Netherlands have got six points from six playing two games in Amsterdam, whereas Spain just really seem to be sort of like have a... It's more of a millstone around the neck the, the fact they're playing in front of a home crowd with all the home media and the negativity from, from the fan base, which is which is just really strange. And it will be interesting to see if they can get out of the group and then turn it around. Well, the other thing we didn't mention earlier was that they're, they're also all, the coach and all the players, are complaining about the grass at La Cartuja. And it's like, this you're at home. Fix your own grass. One point I was going to make, and then it takes, it takes the grass completely out of it as well, is that, you know, who's the... Uh... The highest sort of active goal scorer for Spain at the moment, who still you know hasn't retired from international football, <laughs> big Sergio Ramos, right? He's it could be it could be disaster in his own box sometimes, but he's always good for a goal. Well, yeah, as Rich as Rich said earlier, he would have put that penalty away that Gerard Moreno missed. And then finally, Group F, the group of death, and it might well prove to be that for Portugal, because they are playing France in Budapest. That is a big one. And the other game is Germany-Hungary. The standings are France top on four, Germany second on three, Portugal third on three, and Hungary on their one point. Yeah, I wonder if this one is also going to turn into a damp squib in terms of if France really go for it and try and win the game against Portugal, then I think it could be really interesting. But given what we've seen of France before and what we've discussed about them, you know, they always leave you wanting more. I wonder if again a draw in that game kind of suits both teams because there's there's not really a huge advantage um, to finish first or second in that group, and so a point would definitely put France through, should put Portugal through, um, so they might both settle for it. So we might be you know building up into a, a huge game and then ultimately it, it doesn't turn out to be. Yeah, I think the way that Germany played today as well. It's not not maybe ominous because I still don't think I still think then they would come up short eventually if they were to get to latter stages. But 
the way Germany reacted today from that defeat against France, I think they I think they're gonna batter Hungary and finish may probably even finish top of the group. And that's the pod. Like, follow, subscribe, eat an ice cream, do whatever you like, come back again. We'll be podding soon. 